Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for this time again you have given us to assemble under your word. We thank you for the privilege of hearing it. We pray now that our ears would hear it and our lives would be ready to be shaped by it. Our hearts would receive it. We pray that you would give to us a picture of what it looks like to follow you, to leave everything else in our life and have you be our first and primary and greatest love and loyalty. We pray that you would show us a picture of your devotion to us and that that in itself would fuel and empower a sense of devotion to you. We ask, O oh Lord, that you, by your spirit, would do what man is not able to do. And so raise the dead in the hearing of your word and sanctify the saint in the hearing of your word. Accomplish all that you intend to and don't let your word come back void. This is your promise. We trust it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Semi Road, we started through the book of Ruth just two weeks ago, and today we come to perhaps the most popular section of the book, right? This is the most poignant, popular part of the book of Ruth. So, for example, if you are at all familiar with the story of Ruth, this is in all likelihood the section of Ruth that you are familiar with. If you've got any background in the Bible at all, these are some of the words of Ruth you have most likely heard and know. Because in this section of Ruth, Ruth says some words that are often recited at weddings. They're often spoken by couples in their pledge of love to one another. They're this beautiful bit of poetry. And yet what I want you to hear today is that there is a value that's even greater than a, a literary value to this section. Because in this section of Ruth, what you're going to see is a picture of Ruth's conversion. That's what you get in this story. Ruth is going to convert in this section of scripture that we're looking at. She was a Moabite living in the land of Moab, worshiping the gods of Moab. And in this section, she transfers all of that and now goes to be a person of Yahweh in Israel, a people of God. And in this section, you're going to see her go from here to there. And in that, I want you to hear there's great value for all of us to pay attention. So, for example, if you're here and you're not a Christian... Maybe you're sort of checking out Christianity. You're sort of checking out the church. Maybe you're not even sure why you're here. Or if here, you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian. You come to church regularly. But maybe that's just a part of your culture. Like you wake up on Monday morning, you're going to go to work. You wake up on Sunday morning, you're going to go to church. And maybe you've even deceived yourself and you're not sure if you really believe. Or maybe you're here and you are a follower of Jesus and a sincere believer. Whoever you might be, I want you to hear that this section of Ruth will give for you a picture of what it looks like and what it means and what it takes to be a genuine follower of God. If you have any interest in knowing, am I really a disciple of Jesus, a real follower of God, then Ruth is going to give for us. If you'll listen, she's going to tutor you this morning on what it looks like to commit to God, to follow God, to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay, so we are getting ready to dive into the most famous part of the book of Ruth. Here we go. Here's what happens. Verse 6. Then she, that's Naomi, arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Okay. Let me take two seconds, if you are just jumping in with us, to catch you up and bring you up to speed. 
In Ruth 1, when the story starts, you're introduced to this man, Elimelech. He's got a wife, Naomi. They've got two sons. And what you read is that there's this famine in the land where they're from, Bethlehem, which means the house of bread in Israel, and so much so that they are sort of driven in exile out of Israel into Moab. Well, in five short verses, all three of the men are dead, gone, wiped out. And so now all you've got left are three grieving, sonless widows, Naomi, the wife of Elimelech, and her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. And in verse 6, what you find is that now that she is living in this foreign land, we said it was sort of like America had this financial collapse, and so you moved to North Korea. That's how bad things had gotten. Well, Ruth is, and, and Orpah are from there, but Naomi wakes up. She's got nothing left. And so she hears, verse 6, that there is food again back home. In fact, the way that she hears it, the way the text describes it is Yahweh, that's whenever you see L-O-R-D in caps locks. Whenever you see that, all capitals is Yahweh, the proper name of God. So Yahweh had visited his people back home in Bethlehem and given them food. It's just sort of this throwaway line, but tucked in it is this incredible theology. Right? Just this sort of throwaway line, but tucked in is the reality that everything we have, including the provision on our plate, is because the Lord chooses to visit. Right? One, one preacher said, the Christian out of all people should go to the grocery store knowing that it's God and not the grocer who stocks the shelves. And that their heart should be overwhelmed with gratitude that it is God who provides. And so Naomi, bitter though she may be, destitute though her life has become, knows that the Lord, Yahweh, has visited his people in Bethlehem, and there is bread again now in the house of bread. And so, since she has nothing left in North Korea, no reason to live in Moab anymore, she decides she's going to go home. And you think about it. Imagine her sort of emotional state as she gets ready to make this journey. The last time she had traveled from Bethlehem to Moab, she had a husband beside her, two young boys, her entire life ahead of her. And now all of that is gone. Right? Remember in verse 21 of chapter 1, we heard her say, the Lord, I, I came here full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Right? Empty is how she describes her life. And now she's ready to go home all by herself. Except she's not going to be entirely by herself because verse 7 is going to tell us that her two daughter-in-laws also head out with her. Right? Now, I picture in Naomi's mind, this is sort of like, yeah, I'm going to let the girls accompany me to the airport, maybe even walk me to the gate, but there's no way they're getting on that plane with me. Right? Because in Naomi's mind, she intends very much to make sure these girls go back home. In fact, that's what you see. Look at verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go return each one of you to her mother's house, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So here's the scene. They get to the airport. The girls walk mom all the way to the gate. And then, as she's about to walk all the way through, Naomi turns around to the girls and says, Well, Orpah, Ruth, that's as far as you go. Go, return each one of you to her mother's house. What she's saying is, go home. Go back to your mama. 
And essentially what she's saying is, I'm sending you away. And before she sends them away, she prays this rich prayer of blessing over them. May the Lord, caps locks. So may Yahweh, right? I'm living in Moab. Everybody here worships Chemosh. But may Yahweh, whose sovereign rule and reign extends to all the earth, including Moab, may Yahweh deal kindly with you. And that word there is hased a word that we're going to come back to in some weeks and, and talk through better. But may the Lord show you hesed, right? It's this word that means sort of loving kindness, faithfulness, loyalty, never going to let go kind of love. And what she's saying to them is, may the Lord deal with you with hesed as you have dealt with hesed towards me and to your dead husbands, right? To my sons. As you were loving and loyal to them, so may the Lord be that way now to you. What she's saying is, I saw the way you poured kindness into me for 10 years and to your husbands. And you've been loving and loyal to me. And now she's almost got a debt to them that she can't pay. And so she essentially calls on God to pay her debt for her. She says, may Yahweh deal with you as you dealt with me. May he repay to you the hesed that you showed me. And then moreover, she prays, the Lord caps locks, grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So she's saying, may Yahweh give you, as you go back, a new life, and a new start, and a new home to belong to, and new husbands to marry, and a new life and rest. Right? She's saying, when you go back home, go on MoabiteMingle.com and get on with your life. Right? Get started with your life. What I'm praying for you, and again, tucked into this is sort of a throwaway line of theology. Naomi may be bitter, but she's got great theology. Theology strong enough to say Yahweh's rule and reign extends to all the things of the earth, Israel and Moab, and that even as Yahweh is the one who graciously provides food on your plate, Yahweh is the one who can bring relationships into your life. And so I'm praying, daughters, that the Lord would bring good men into your life. Husbands, so that you could find rest and be in a new home and get started with a new life. Here's what Naomi's doing. Naomi is releasing these two daughter-in-laws from any obligation they may have or feel towards her. And she's saying, I'm letting you go of all of that. And I want you to hear this. As you think through what she's saying there, what she's doing there, I don't know about you, but I was deeply struck by what an incredible gesture this is. And not an empty gesture, a real gesture. You see, Naomi knows what is waiting for her when she gets to Bethlehem. She's about to take this journey home, and you imagine walking that way from Moab to Bethlehem by herself. And when she gets there, there is no husband waiting for her, and the text is soon going to tell us she's too old to get remarried. There's no sons waiting for her. There's no future waiting for her. We talked last week. What is waiting for her is a life of widowhood and childlessness. She has nothing to secure her place in society. You don't even know how she's going to make it. You don't even know how she's going to survive. What you do know is she's going home so that she can die, in all likelihood, a bitter old woman by herself. And what she's saying to her daughters is I don't want that for you. It's actually the most loving thing she could possibly do. You know how you hear misery loves company? Not Naomi. 
Naomi is saying, I am releasing you from sharing in the fate that awaits me if I go to Bethlehem. Right? She's, she's confining herself. She's basically sentencing herself then to a life of loneliness to live and die the rest of her days alone and saying, you don't have to join me in that. Go home. And then the text says, then she kissed them and lifted up their voices and they wept. Right? I, I don't know if you can picture that scene. Right? Sort of, I do think back to the airport runs. Maybe because I had immigrant parents. When, when a family member went away to the airport, for, for us, it was this traumatic event, right? Because in all likelihood, the person you were saying bye to, you were not going to see again, at least for a long time. So I, I remember my grandmother, who had lived with us till we were eight years old, till I was eight years old, driving her to the airport was essentially saying bye. I have never seen her in this land again. And so I remember the whole trip to the airport is sad itself. When you get to the gate, and then when they turn around and kiss you, oh, everybody weeps, bawls your eyes out. That, that's what happens here. Because Naomi turns one last time, and she kisses them, and they lifted up their voices, and they began to weep. But listen to how Orpah and Ruth respond. Verse 10, and they said to her, no. We will return with you to your people. These two hesed-showing, loving daughter-in-laws say, there's no way you're going alone. We're boarding that plane with you because where you go, your people, that's where we're going to as well. And I want you to hear, this is not an empty gesture. This is not formality. This is not them being polite. They are sincerely saying, we're coming with you. Right? And they are sincerely saying, this loyal love you've seen for us, it's going to extend on. We're still coming. And that begins sort of a fight at the gate between the two of them. They're going to go back and forth and argue a bit because Naomi's going to respond now. Verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. And you notice, by the way, she doesn't call them daughter-in-laws. It's my daughters. In fact, three times in just the next few verses, she's going to say, my daughters. And you begin to see the sort of relationship of love in these three women. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You see, what you get is sort of this back and forth right there at the terminal, right there at the gate. This back and forth where Naomi says, you're going to come with me. And then she begins to give sort of a line-by-line, line, airtight case for why it is utter folly for them to even think about going with her. Why it is absolutely impossible for them to do anything but walk back to Moab. And why coming on to Bethlehem would be utter folly. It's, it's not even an option. You hear what she says? She says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? That's saying, why on earth were you going to come with me? What on earth do I have to offer you? She goes on to say, do I have sons in my womb that I could give you husbands? And what that is, is it's probably a hint to the fact that Naomi is old in age, right? What she's literally saying is, 
I, I can't give you sons. This womb provided your husbands once. It can't do it again. She's hinting at the fact that she's past the age of childbearing. And moreover, she's also hinting at this custom. In the Old Testament, there was this custom that if a man died and his widow had no children, that means what happens? His name is cut off from the face of the earth. He's got no descendants. And so there was this custom to ensure that his line would continue and that his widow would be provided for. And so the brother of the dead man would marry the widow. And the firstborn child of that marriage would carry on the dead man's name. So it's this practice to ensure that widows are cared for. The name continues. But, but Naomi's saying, I have no sons to give you. Right? And I can't have any sons. And just to show them how utterly impossible this whole thing was, Naomi plays out every scenario for just a second just to almost let them see the utter folly of thinking they would come with her. She goes on to say, say I did have hope for a second. Say you could reverse the biological clock for a second, and say for a second I could get pregnant. What that would mean is, say I got a husband. That is, I found a man today. We got married today. Say I conceived tonight, she says. Literally adds the word tonight. Saying, say we conceived and I got pregnant tonight. And then I was able to bear sons. And I'm imagining I need to hit the lotto and have twins for both of you, right? So I got I to gotta find a husband, get married, have, get pregnant tonight, give birth to two twins. Even if all that could happen, are you going to wait till they're grown so that you can marry them? Are you going to refrain from marrying for the next 16, 18, 20 years? Till now, your body is as good as dead also before you finally move on with your life? Na Naomi is presenting for them an airtight case of why there is no choice here. There's only one thing you can do. There's only one option. That's go home. You can't come with me. And if all of that, hear me, Sevma wrote, wasn't convincing enough, just for good measure, she adds one more line at the end of verse 13. She says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, meaning it's much worse for me than you, that the hand of Yahweh, the Lord, has gone out against me. If all of that wasn't enough, the fact that I got nothing for you, nothing to offer you, no sons, no possibility of sons, no one to get you married to, no hope, no future, coming with me is going to mean a widowed, childless life for the rest of your days. If all of that wasn't enough, my daughters, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Do you really want to tie yourself to someone whom the Lord is against? She's saying to them, are you really going to throw your lot in with someone who obviously God himself is against? You've seen what Yahweh's brought into my life. You saw the famine that brought into my life. You saw how I was exiled from my land. Yahweh brought that into my life. You saw how my husband died. Widowhood brought into my life. No children brought into my life. Widowed, barren, childless. This is all the things and circumstances the Lord has brought into my life. And she's almost saying, what if this is just the beginning? Are you sure you want to follow me? The Lord's hand himself has gone out against me. So daughters... Go home. And Sevma wrote, hear me, it really is a no-brainer. 
There is only one choice to make. And so in verse 14, it says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Here's what happens. All three of them get a sense of how dire the situation really is. And they all begin to weep. This really is goodbye. I mean, what else could it be? You heard Naomi. This really is goodbye. And so all three of the women grab one another. They lift up their voices and they weep and they wail. And here's what I picture. Orpah bawls her eyes out. I imagine she cries till her body is heaving and shaking and can't control herself. And then she kisses her dear mother-in-law. She grabs her bags and starts walking back to Moab. But Ruth clung to her. Now, I want to take a second to make sure that we don't bash Orpah, right? I want to take a second to make sure that we don't trash her because you'll notice in the text there's not a single word of criticism from the author or the narrator about Orpah. She is not in the story the wicked, evil stepsister or she is not the selfish daughter-in-law. That's not who Orpah is. Instead, I want you to see this. Orpah is doing the sensible thing. She's making the only decision there is to make. She's doing exactly what she was told to do. In fact, here's what I want you to see. She is obeying the wise counsel of her elder. She's listening to her mother-in-law. I was telling Shainu this week, if I was in this story, I would have definitely been Orpah, right? Because I would have weighed all the options. I would have understood there's only one choice to make. I would have been affirmed in the fact that there's this elderly, believing woman who gave me godly counsel. And I would have obeyed Naomi to the, to the last word. I would have been exactly like that. And I want you to hear, the text doesn't include Orpah to put her down. The text includes Orpah to lift Ruth up. You see, what the text is not trying to do, it's not criticizing Orpah for leaving, but rather praising Ruth for staying. That's what the text is doing. The, the narrator wants you to see Orpah did the sensible, expected thing. And consequently, that means that Ruth did the unexpected and extraordinary thing. Orpah wants to be a wife. She wants to maybe even be a mom. And so she left. Ruth commits herself to never being anything but a daughter. And so she stays. And the text isn't putting down Orpah. It's just highlighting Ruth. And so I picture in my mind that Ruth bawled her eyes out. So much so that her body was shaking and heaving uncontrollably. And she watched Orpah walk down the street towards Moab. And then she grabs her bags and looks at Naomi and says, Okay, Mom, let's go. But Ruth clung to her. Right? That's what the text says. And that word cling is this word that's used in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the word that's used in Genesis to talk about marriage. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And that's sort of the commitment that Ruth is here making. She is leaving every prior allegiance, every former loyalty, every bit of her place, her people, her identity. She is leaving all of that to now cling to Naomi. That's the way she's bonding herself to her. And I can imagine that this caught Naomi off guard just as much as it would catch you and me. So much so that you know that in verse 15, and she, that's Naomi, said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. This is Naomi's one more shot. Did you not hear that I got nothing for you? Did you not hear what's waiting for you if you come with me? And I, I want you to hear that. If Ruth does go to Bethlehem, I want you to consider for a moment what that means. She's got no husband, no sons. Naomi's trying to convey to her, listen, when you get to Bethlehem, it's not like they have a high opinion of Moabites. You're never going to have friends. And it's not like there's a huge market of Jewish bachelors who are lining up ready to marry widowed, barren Moabite women. How many men are going to line up to marry someone you know is barren, can't have kids, is Moabite and a widow? You come with me, you are literally sealing yourself to a life where you're going to live with me as long as you can and you will not have anyone or anything. So here's the options, Ruth. You go home and you've got parents and you've got friends, and you've got the neighborhood you grew up in, and you've got community, and you've got a people you belong to, and you've got the prospect of what every girl wants. You've got the hope of a future, and a family, and a life, and all of that. You come with me, you are sentencing yourself to the same fate that I have, is what Ruth is being told. See, your sister-in-law went down. Do the sensible thing, Ruth, and do what Orpah did. And Ruth responds, Samarod, with one of the most beautiful words of poetry you have ever heard. I, I kid you not, some of the most eloquent and beautiful words to ever come off a human tongue. So much so that millennia later, down to every word, we still recite it. She says, 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So beautiful, I, I looked it up in the King James, just because it's even cooler there. So would you hear it? And Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. I, it, it's so pretty and beautiful, I almost don't want to touch it. It's like a, a painting that I'm afraid I'm going to smudge with my fingers. She says, consider for a second, don't ask me anymore 
to leave. Entreat me not to leave thee anymore. Right? And, and think about this for a second. Would you let the story come off the page for a second? Uh, I'd appeal to you ladies for a second. Your husband passes. You're in the prime of your life. You've got the prospect of life and future and family and remarriage and all of it. And you're going to board a plane with your mother-in-law to go back to her home and to be sealed off for the rest of your days to live with your mother-in-law. Ruth is an incredibly remarkable, courageous, bold, hesed full woman. But here's the thing I want you to hear. There is something more than just loyalty to Naomi that's happening here. Right? What I'm trying to impress on you is not just look how this woman loved her mother-in-law. There's a place for that, and we'll talk through that as well. But at least this week, here's what I want you to hear. There is something deeper and thicker and better than even commitment to Naomi that's happening in Ruth's words. There is a deeper loyalty that's coming to the surface here. Because not only does she say, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. She then says, and your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. You see, somehow wrote, what you're listening in on is Ruth's conversion. What you're listening to, if you'll pay attention, is Ruth is giving for all of us a picture of what it means to become a follower of God. Ruth, if you'll let her, is tutoring you right now on what it means, on what it takes to actually be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, what Ruth is saying is every previous commitment that I had, every former allegiance, every prior loyalty is now done. Because now... I have thrown my life and my lot in with the God of Naomi and with her people. Her loyalty is not just to Naomi. It's now with Yahweh and with Yahweh's people. She's not just saying, I'm with you, Naomi. She's saying, I'm with Israel and I'm with Israel's God for the rest of my days. And in doing that, Samar wrote, she literally becomes one of only two women in the entire Old Testament to actually convert that we know of all the way into Israel. There's others who have sort of glanced at Yahweh. There's a queen all the way from named Sheba who comes all the way to just sort of glance and admire Yahweh. But literally only two women that we know of who come all the way to say, I'm not just glancing at Yahweh, I'm in. Yahweh is now my God. His people are now my people. In fact, the only other woman was also a Gentile also an outcast, also the bottom rung of society. In fact, it was this prostitute named Rahab. And she too says, I'm in, all the way in to Yahweh and his people. And wouldn't you know, Semarod, God also brings her in all the way in to include her too into Jesus' genealogy. So that these two outcast, Gentile, heathen, low-class women get brought into Israel by Israel's God all the way to be in line to bring about Israel's Savior. That's what God does here. And you know what the best part is? Ruth comes to faith either moments before or declares it now, and she does so when Naomi is probably the worst evangelist there has ever been, right? 
Naomi basically said, I want to share my faith with you. She gives her a track and says, let me tell you about Yahweh. Yahweh brought a famine into my life. Yahweh kicked me out of my land. Yahweh took my husband and my kids. And I have no idea what Yahweh intends to do next. And Ruth says, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. That, that'd be me telling you, following Jesus is going to cost you your life. That means me telling you following Jesus means you say goodbye to every prior loyalty, every former allegiance, every previous commitment, and Jesus himself becomes Lord. And if you do that, it'll cost you. It'll cost you family. It'll cost you friends. It'll cost you respect. You'll get mocked. It'll cost you your life. And you say, I'm in. I'm in. All the way in with Jesus and with his people for the rest of my days. That's what Ruth is doing. And that's why Ruth is a picture for you, Seven Mile Road, of what it looks like and what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. She has heard Yahweh's worst, and she's in. All the way in with God and with his people. She says, I'm not going back, not to my people, nor to my gods. Your God will now be my God, and your people will be my people. That is what conversion is. I once lived this way and identified with these people and valued these things, but I have gone from here to there. And now I'm in, all the way in, not marginally in, all the way in. That's what happens when you become a Christian. That's what baptism is a picture of. <clears throat> baptism is a picture of I identify myself now with Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and with his people till death do me part. That's what, that's what Christian conversion is, and Ruth is a picture of that for us. In fact, I want you to hear how deep her commitment is. It's the one you'll have to make if you're a Christian also. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Her commitment goes not just to Naomi, but beyond Naomi. You know how you know that? She says, not only am I coming to live where you live, I'm going to die where you die. And that's where I will be buried. You know what she's saying? I am never going back. I'm never going back. Because my commitment is not even just a, I'll live with you, take care of you till you die. Naomi's old. She's going to die soon. And then I can go back and start my life. Her commitment is, and when you're dead, I'm going to live out my days there with Yahweh and his people so that they will bury me where you're buried. I'm telling you, Naomi, not even death is going to rid you of me. I'm going to be with you in life and in death. I'm never going back. Right? That, that's what she's saying. I'm reminded of the legend, if you've heard the, the story of Cortez, Right? the Spanish sailor who came to America, came to Mexico, and then there's some, the legend has it that his people are starting to murmur, we could go back, life is so much better there. And the legend has it that he does what? He burns all the ships, so as to say, no one's going back. He cuts off any potential of retreat, any possibility of going back. And Ruth says that with a vow. She seals it, not calling on a generic God. May Yahweh do to me and more, if anything parts me, in life or in death, from you. 
because I am here for the rest of not only your days, but my days also. All the way in. Ruth is an incredibly strong and determined and courageous and risky and bold and committed follower. And oh, that Seven Mile Road would be filled with disciples like that. And I love verse 18. It simply says, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. You love that. Right? Naomi looks. She hears it in Ruth's voice. She sees it in Ruth's face. She's got no more fight left. She just grabs her stuff, and the two of them start walking to Bethlehem. And Naomi has no idea of the kind of hesed, the kind of love and loyalty this woman standing beside her is about to show her. And that's what we get to consider in the weeks to come. Let me end with this, Samaru. My application for you this week is so simple and so straightforward. It's this. Ruth reminds us of the commitment that we ought to have to Jesus and the commitment that Jesus has had towards us. That's it. In this section of Ruth, Ruth reminds us of the commitment that we ought to have for Jesus and the commitment that Jesus has had for us. This morning, Ruth is a call to you of the kind of commitment you ought to have towards Jesus Christ. Because it will be later Jesus himself who looks at a crowd of potential disciples, like you and me, and says, whoever of you does not hate his father or his mother, his brother or his sisters, land, wives, whoever of you will not lead children, and all that you have for my sake cannot be my disciple. And what he's saying is, whoever of you has not already decided that every other previous commitment and loyalty and allegiance of your life has come so far second that it looks like hate in comparison to your love and loyalty to me, you can't be my disciple. No marginal check-in on Sunday, disciples. You're either all the way in or you're all the way out. Whoever of you cannot commit like that can't be my disciple. And so you have a decision to make today to follow Jesus all the way. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a song called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Let me take 30 seconds to tell you. Legend has it that the background of that song, and I want you to be thinking it as we sing it together, is that that song was written actually in the 1800s. Some Welsh missionaries went to northern India, and they sought to spread the gospel to a people that had not heard the gospel. And the story goes that a man and his wife and his children, his family, came to faith. And that the tribal villager called out this family so angry that someone had converted to the other white man's God that they decided to make an example out of him. And the story, the legend goes, that they brought this family out and said, you must recant or you will die. Brings out his children and says, recant or we'll kill them. And the man says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And they kill his sons. Grabs the wife and says, recant or we'll kill her. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. And they kill her. Recant or you will die. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. Story of that spread in this man's martyrdom so that the village converts. And then later they put to words his dying words. 
Such is the story of that song. Such is the commitment that Jesus is calling you and I to make. But here's the last thing. The truth is you and I are not so heroic. We're ordinary. And what on earth could move you and me to that kind of commitment? Well, the scriptures say we love him because he first loved us. And the only thing that can turn your heart and fuel your commitment to commit to him in such a way is when you begin to see, I'm doing this because this is the way he was first for me. Because Ruth is not only a picture of the kind of commitment you ought to have for Jesus. Ruth is a picture of the kind of commitment that Jesus has for you. You know, when you read Ruth and Naomi, you wonder, is there anybody who's going to love me like Ruth loved Naomi? Anyone who's going to see me at my worst, right? Naomi, her name used to mean pleasant. She says, I'm not pleasant anymore. Have you ever been around bitter people? They're not pleasant. And, and Ruth sees Naomi at her worst and says, I'm with you. Naomi's basically inviting Ruth saying, you got to save yourself. If you stick with me, it means death for you. And Ruth says, well, then it means death for me. And you wonder, is there anyone who could possibly love you like that? And Ruth is a picture Jesus did. Jesus saw you at his worst. And what did he do? He left his land. And he left his father. And when it said, you're either going to save us or die if you're with us, he said, then I guess I choose death. Saw you at your worst, committed you to you all the way, and promised you, I swear to you, not even death will part me from you. I am with you in life and in death all the way. And when you begin to see such is the love of God for you, who saw you at your worst and committed to be with you and do whatever it took to have you, it begins to unlock your heart to be committed likewise to him. Jesus is the one who said to us, if being with you means my life is over, then my life is over. So let Ruth be for you this morning a powerful picture of Jesus' commitment to you in such a way that it emboldens you and moves you to be likewise committed to him. Let's pray.